0: Friends, let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for bringing us here together today. And we just ask that you would move any obstacles that are in our way, that are preventing us from hearing your word, from seeing your spirit, and feeling your presence in this place. We just ask that you would illuminate the pages of scripture for us, that we might see what it is that you would have us do for you and the world around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Our epistle reading comes from the letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And our final reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock. And our Redeemer. While early on in our marriage Tim and I briefly attended a large Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, aside from that time we have both always been Presbyterian. We met as children when my dad became the pastor at Dormont Presbyterian during the time that his dad was the organist there. Presbyterian roots run deep in both of our families In fact, on my side, we've not just been Scottish Presbyterian, but have been Presbyterian ministers for so long that our last name, Clark, comes from the old Scottish word for cleric or clergy. But a few years ago, my sister, who is a Lutheran now, took my younger two kids to church with her. And I think it's great for my kids to get to go to church with different styles and different traditions than the Presbyterian churches they're used to. But as I'm generally tied up on Sunday mornings, that doesn't happen as often as I would like. So I was excited to know that they would get to go to Sarah's church with her. And they celebrated communion there that morning, just as we are going to do this morning. And communion at my sister's church is not that different from communion here or at my last church or at our home church. It's a sacrament. Children are welcome at the table. There's a lot of prayer and reflection and so on. And while we pass the elements here, as do many Presbyterian churches, our home church serves by intinction, which is when everybody comes forward to the table, takes a piece of bread from one common loaf, dips it in the cup, and then takes both elements together. So when at my sister's church everyone was called forward, for communion. It didn't seem that out of the ordinary for my children, and they dutifully followed her up when their pew was called forward. But then they saw the wafers. You see, being Presbyterian, my children had only seen either little squares of shortbread or one large loaf that got torn in half. They had never, ever seen communion wafers, those little flying saucers of bread-like, I'm not even quite sure, What they are that are not generally used in Presbyterian churches, but are used in many other denominations. So when the wafer was placed in Levi's little hand, he just sort of looked at it, puzzled. And he whispered to my sister, Aunt Sarah, what is it? And she whispered back, It's the communion bread. And he looked at the wafer in his hand, and he looked at Pastor Stan, who had handed it to him, and he looked at my sister again, and she said, Levi, you eat it! She said she was just waiting for one of the kids to comment loudly about how it wasn't food, or they didn't understand how this was the bread, but both children, being Presbyterian, very decently and in order went along with it and did as they were told. And it opened up great conversations for us afterwards about how different churches, especially churches of different denominations, and even those who agree on things like whether communion is a sacrament or a simple remembrance, we all celebrate communion a little bit differently. And that's true of many church celebrations and activities. It's true of baptisms, of music, elements of the worship service, order of the worship service, whether the pastor wears a clerical collar or a robe or not. And decisions about these things are made for theological reasons, like the common loaf is a symbol of how we're all in this together in Jesus Christ, for pastoral reasons, like it's difficult for the elderly and disabled to move forward to take communion, and sometimes for plain old practical reasons, like it's too darn hot this time of year for me to be standing up here in my bulky black robes. But when they aren't periodically re-evaluated and regularly discussed theologically, pastorally, practically, when they're taken for granted as simply the way we do it, these patterns and rules don't serve any real purpose at all. They become a sort of secret handshake that gets in the way of people from the outside being able to feel like they really know what's going on. They begin to drive people apart rather than bringing them together. These often unspoken rules about how things work can be disorienting. They can actually drive people away if we aren't sensitive to how that happens. This is the problem we encounter in Acts 15. Some of the Christians who had converted to Judaism felt strongly that it was important to maintain their Jewish customs, especially circumcision and kosher law, in order to be fully Christian. This was their theological history, and it was a big part of how they had worshipped from the time they were young. And so some of them traveled, without official sanction from the church in Jerusalem, to Antioch where the church was primarily made up of Gentile converts. And these Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, didn't see any need for circumcision and kosher law. They didn't see this in Jesus' teachings. And they argued that their salvation was in Christ, so they didn't need this kosher law anymore. Just like we saw in Saul's persecution of the church last week, These guys really did think they were doing the right thing. Their hearts were likely in the right place. They saw what they believed to be a soul-damning sin, and they struck out to confront it. All their lives and through all their generations, the kosher law and circumcision had been what set them apart from other religions. It was what made them different. It was what made their God different from all the other gods. So it's understandable that they were hesitant to allow the Gentiles into the fold without their becoming full Jews first. But what these Judaizers, as Paul later calls them, saw as sin was really just the Gentile church acting in the freedom from sin and law that we are all given in Jesus Christ. Breaking with the traditional law was not a sin In fact, a little bit before this, in chapters 10 and 11, God gives the apostle Peter a weird vision in which he tells him, it's okay for the Gentiles to eat whatever they're going to eat. They don't have to follow the old law that way. That law was given as a grace to the people, so using it as a means of judgment or exclusion is sinful. This became a pretty big conflict And so we see the church leaders, including Paul and Peter, get involved in this issue. I love how the scripture says there was no small debate among them. What an understatement. So they have a council in Jerusalem, the first church council on record to sort this out. And the leaders come up with this statement about the situation. Essentially, our actions matter, but they do not save us. The Gentiles don't need to follow the whole kosher law, but they do need to be sensitive to those for whom their spirituality is bound up in that, for whom that is part of their theological identity. The Jewish Christians are free to continue to live out their freedom and the grace that God gives through their circumcision and the kosher law, and the Gentile converts need to be sensitive to that. But it's also on the Jews to be sensitive to the fact that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised and follow the full kosher law to be Christians. In other words, the new guys, they don't have to worship the same as the old guard in order to be good Christians. And the old guard don't have to throw out their faithful traditions either. Both are called to work together and to find common ground, honoring each other's faith, because both are saved by the same Jesus Christ and nothing else. Both are called to sacrifice something, to give up something for the sake of growth and unity. Notice that they aren't told to worship separately, but to work together. Like Abraham, both get to the moment of sacrifice and see that God has something amazing planned the whole time. We get such an interesting look at this grace and law interaction in Genesis 22. You see, all around Abraham and his family were people groups for whom child sacrifice was a totally normal thing. It's something that was just assumed to be the thing to do in order to please your God. So when Abraham's God demands he sacrifice his child, it seems difficult, but pretty normal, to Abraham. It was violent, and it was awful, but violent and awful was how the world was in Abraham's day. But just at the very moment that Abraham raises his knife, his hand is stopped by God, and another sacrifice is provided. This passage, this part of Genesis, is not primarily about Abraham's faith, it's about God's grace. It's about how different Abraham's God is from all the other gods the other people are worshiping. The climb up the mountain, that process of letting go of things we have loved, is rough. The moment with God at the top is precious, and it is life-giving because the God we serve is different than the gods the world tries to pawn off on us. This moment in Genesis 22 isn't about Abraham proving himself to God. It's about God proving himself to Abraham. It's not about Abraham being different than the people around him. It's about God being different than the gods around him. Our God does not demand sacrifice as do the other gods. Our God gives covenant and grace rather than demanding. That is the point Of the Abraham and Isaac story and that is the point of the law that is given to the Israelites when God keeps saying I am the Lord your God and you will be holy you will be set aside you will be different from the world around you a different God calls for different people that God is about grace not law even the law is about grace not law Sin is not by definition breaking the law, it's breaking God's shalom, the peace and wellness of humanity and of creation. God's commandments are are fences that help to direct us back toward that shalom. In our Christian arguments, those inevitable times that we disagree over what pleases God, how we should best worship, what laws we should worry about and which ones we should not worry about, We are asked to remember that it's about grace, not a specific set of rules. We are to remember that love comes first because our God is a different kind of God calling us to be a different kind of people. God gave the law not to condemn, but to help us find our way back to unity, to shalom. Warren Wearsby says this, Christians need to learn the art of loving compromise. They need to have their priorities in order so they know when to fight for what is really important in the church. It is sinful to follow some impressive member of the church who is fighting to get his or her way on some minor issue that is not worth fighting about. Every congregation needs a regular dose of the love described in 1 Corinthians 13 to prevent division and dissension. I fully agree with him on this and add that we need a regular dose of that love and compromise to prevent apathy and decline, as well as division and dissension. Love and compromise are different from the rest of the world. Love and compromise say we refuse to fall in line with the petty ways of judgment and division and exclusion that the world wants us to play by. Weir'sby goes on to say this, As we deal with our differences, we must ask, How will our decisions affect the united witness of the Church to the lost? That's our business, after all, isn't it? Witnessing to the lost? If our business is to be a social club, then by all means we should only do the things we've always done. But we can't be surprised when that doesn't actually make any difference in the world around us. We can't be surprised when new converts or potential new community members don't want to stick around, when we demand they fit our preset molds or figure out our difficult secret language, we can't be shocked when people outside of the club don't understand it. But if our business truly is that of fulfilling God's call to witness to the lost, then we should always be changing, always be growing and flexing, finding new and fresh ways to celebrate old traditions and seasons, and welcoming in the new among the old. Not judging, always exploring. Not excluding, always welcoming. When tradition becomes tradition for the sake of tradition, it's useless and sinful. But when it's married to fresh new life, theological and loving understanding and consideration of the entire community, it becomes a beautiful new sacrifice to God. Amen.